right. Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And I'm excited this week to be joined by Jessica Salaji. She's a contributor at allongeorgia.com. Jessica, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Um, So on this week's episode, we're going to do our last bit of coverage of the primaries as we head to the vote on May 22nd. We've got primaries on both the Democratic and and, uh, Republican sides uh, in the governor's race, lieutenant governor's race. And there's some interesting statewide races going on on both sides of the aisle. Um, So we're going to kind of just wrap up our coverage on that and um, let you know what to look forward to as Election Day comes up. Um, so we'll start with the Republicans. But before we get started, Jessica, um, since it's your first time on the show, do you want to tell us a little bit about All on Georgia and, and the work that you do uh, in Georgia politics? Sure. So I am a conservative leaning libertarian. Um, my political ideologies have kind of um, evolved over the last several years as Republicans have been in leadership. But I started blogging and then I was hired by All on Georgia. Um, a few years ago, worked on a few campaigns. Um, All on Georgia is mostly focused outside of metro Atlanta and counties um, that are more rural and only have the newspaper as their source of news. So it's kind of an effort to bring an unbiased look at their local government and the things that are going on in their communities. So I live in southeast Georgia, um, outside of Statesboro, and I cover lots of local governments that are super corrupt and just kind of do what they want. Um, and then I covered the General Assembly when the legislature's in session and statewide politics, just basically wherever there's stuff going on that I feel like the public should um, be paying attention to. But my focus is generally transparency, accountability, um, ethics, that kind of stuff. Very cool. Yes. Well, let's uh, get started with the Republicans uh, vying for the nomination for uh, the, on the Republican side for governor. Um, so let's just start with kind of, uh, Jessica, with kind of your first thoughts on this race. What are some of the like headline items that stand out to you about, about any of the candidates or about where this race stands um, as we head to the vote? You know, Casey Cagle has been the front runner for months and months and months. And I know there's a large majority of us who are not in the poll of people, you know, hoping that he'll be our contender um, going into the the runoff in the general election. Um, I'm on the anyone but Kegel bandwagon, and I think a lot of us hoped he would kind of oxendine like we saw back in 2010, but that doesn't seem to be happening. So I do think it's great that there are so many people in the race. I think it keeps him from winning um, outright and without a runoff. But, you know, I still think it's anyone's game right now, Kemp, Hill, or Tippins, who could possibly just swoop in and get enough because if you think of it with six contenders you don't really need that much to make it into the runoff with with Kegel polling so high so I still think it's anyone's game what do you think about this uh contest that's kind of developing for for second place in the in the uh, second spot in this runoff I've kind of had in my mind that Hunter Hill and Brian Kemp are kind of fighting over this definition of what either the true conservative or the conservative alternative is. Hunter Hill's focused a lot of his final messaging on his Christian values and on his pledge to eliminate the state's income tax. And Brian Kemp has really gone hard at some immigration messaging. Um, One of the headlines that he made recently was his final ad in this contest uh, where he pulls up to the scene in his pickup truck and he says that he um, has his big truck that he'll round up criminal illegal aliens himself if he has to. Um, what do you think about that framing? Is this a, a fight over sort of the true definition of conservative between these two? I think it is. And I think it has a lot to do with Casey Cagle being the front runner. I think that because Cagle is kind of the the establishment choice and the the career politicians and the insiders pick that it's kind of boxed anyone who wants to be in second place into being the most politically incorrect and the most outspoken about their quote values and principles. Um, I don't think we would have seen such a hard line swing to the right had Casey Cagle not been so cookie cutter, um, standard, moderate Republican. I mean. Michael Williams just 
announced um, that he's going on a deportation bus tour around the state. I don't think we would have seen things like that with the gray bus with chicken wire on the windows going around to haul illegals back to Mexico if um, the other choice for who is in first place and who they're all going to be facing wasn't so moderate. What do you think about that uh, sharp turn to the right on immigration rhetoric? I I feel like I remember Republicans from a few years ago, definitely from the pre-Trump era, talking more about like border security and uh, positioning it as like a, a law and order issue where we needed to get the law and order part right. But it um, you know, this was still a country of immigrants that was supposed to be kind of welcoming to immigrants. What do you think of um, how this discussion has shifted to, at least to those of us on the other side of the aisle, it feels like something that's kind of hostile uh, and punitive against immigrants? Sure. So, you know, I've had the opportunity to sit down and talk with each of these candidates, with the exception of Cagle. And I asked all of them, you know, what caused this shift? to focus on illegal immigration because while we looked at it from a law and order standpoint, it really hasn't been the role of the governor's office to kind of take the lead on an issue like this. We've kind of just said, well, this is what we can do here at home, but we're gonna defer to the feds. And I think it's kind of a trickle down of what we're seeing from President Trump and his constant conversation about it that seems to be resonating with Republican voters. I, I think that we're just seeing candidates trying to kind of follow in his footsteps, whether that's that's good or bad. You know, there are counties in Georgia that went for Hillary that had been historically red. So I'm not, I mean, yeah, red that, so I'm not sure if it's the best option for them, but it's kind of come out of left field. And I don't know that had it not been such a national topic that it would even be an issue that we'd be talking about. Do you see anything either on this immigration issue or the other issue that stood out to me uh, where there's been a sharp turn to the right for Republicans is the debate over guns. Um, I saw that, you know, Hunter Hill got some blowback to some comments he made earlier in this race about um, having the age uh, for the purchasing of different kinds of guns, assault weapons or handguns to be to unify those at 21 instead of possibly unifying those down at the age of 18. Um, Georgia Carey uh, opposed Hunter Hill, did an anti-endorsement, which I think is kind of unique. Um, on either of those issues or, or anything else, is there anything that where you think Republicans are taking positions that might haunt them in November? You know, I think the immigration thing is more likely to haunt them in November just because immigration is not everyone's issue. But I think that, you know, as as much as some of the comments have been a turnoff because people are so, Republicans in general are so far to the right on guns right now over fears of regulation and confiscation and all of that, I just don't foresee somebody abandoning a Republican on the ballot over a pro-gun stance. You know, as a conservative, if somebody is not in favor of the positions on guns that I am, it's definitely a disqualifier for me, for them, but I don't see it going the opposite way. At the same time, and I may be totally off base here, but I don't know that Democrats are single-issue voters on, or moderates even, people in the middle of the road are single-issue voters on guns, that that would be their determiner for picking a party that they might not normally pick. So I'm not sure that the Second Amendment is going to be as divisive as it is in the media. Yeah, I've been a little curious. I don't know if in the wake of the Parkland shooting and the discussion that's been created by the students at that school and young people, if, you know, like women in the suburbs would consider not not necessarily abandoning you know, their beliefs in the Second Amendment or, or wanting to have like really punitive gun control measures. Um, but it, the thing that's kind of struck me is that it there just seems to be because the, because they're in this contest about, uh, you know, who can prove that they love the Second Amendment the most. Right. There seems to be not much seriousness on addressing the problem within the Parkland shooting and, and other mass shootings and other issues of gun violence. And so I wonder if it's not whether or not Republicans would change their mind about, you know, whether or not people should have the right to own guns, but whether or not 
Republicans actually take the issue of gun violence seriously and, and have thoughts about, you know, what you can do about that. Well, you bring up a really good point that I think isn't just exclusive to the Second Amendment, but I mean, you look at these ads and there really is no substance behind them. I mean, there's no true policy position. It's just talking points and things that make you smile or cringe or, you know, evoke an emotion, but there's no actual substance to these commercials that tells you where any of them are going to stand on an issue. Um or reform an issue or anything like that. And that's something we see in so many, I mean, we, that could get into voter knowledge and what voters want and what resonates and everything. But for the most part, I just, there hasn't been any real conversation. And I feel like until until about two weeks ago, there wasn't much coverage or action going on in the lieutenant governor's race or the governor's race on the GOP side. They were just kind of doing their own thing and not talking about anybody else. And now all of a sudden here we are slinging mud and talking about who's the very best, most conservative person ever to walk the earth. So, (laughs) yeah. Is that, um, do you sense like, are people kind of running out of ideas on the conservative side or I don't, I've had this complaint since we started this show. And since I started paying close attention to the legislature that we have really big issues in rural health care in, education funding in transportation, particularly in the metro Atlanta area, where from either a conservative or a progressive perspective, some like big ideas are needed. And I've been surprised with the exception of like uh, House Speaker David Ralston's effort around the Rural Development Council, that the last few years, none of these big issues have really been tackled. And, and people haven't brought forward sort of like the big transformative ideas on a lot of these things. Is that, do you sense that, um, among the Republicans in this race, or am I not giving them enough credit? No, I mean, I don't think they're deserving of the credit that you're talking about. I mean, going back kind of to the legislature, which the most most of them have served in, with the exception, exception of Clay Tippins, you know, we're doing this thing, we've moved to this inching along tactic where we tweak something a little bit and see if it breaks the system or improves the system, and then the next year we do a little bit more. And you're right, we haven't had any overhauls for the better or for for the worse, other than, I mean, you even look at Opportunity School Districts and Transportation um, from 2015, both are band-aids for a much bigger problem and issues that have go back decades. And, um, you know, Michael Williams has kind of been ostracized for some of his very bold and out their ideas, but I had the opportunity to sit down with him twice and kind of schooled him on his record and votes I thought that he was kind of out there on. And he's really the only one in the race who understands that there's like bigger picture, deeper ways to go um, down these paths instead of just saying what needs to be said at the time, but maybe saying like having an actual plan. Whereas these other people, are saying what sounds great, but you're wondering how they're going to implement it, where the money's going to come from, and how they're going to get support for it. And they haven't even thought about that, I don't think. So I don't think they're deserving of any credit for long-term plans or reform. What What are the some of the things you've seen about Michael Williams? We've, we've spent a lot of time on this show mocking him for a lot of things that progressives uh, find either amusing or infuriating about particularly his rhetoric on immigration. But but I, I noticed that, too, because I just looked at some of the bills he introduced in the state Senate at the beginning of this campaign. What are some of the interesting things outside of, um, you know, this immigration rhetoric that stuck out to you? So I actually didn't get to sit down with him until about um, maybe a month ago, a little bit after. And I was kind of disappointed because I was in the same position as you where I was mocking him and not giving him the benefit of the doubt. I'm like, gosh, this guy is Trump Jr. Like, that's all he can talk about is what President Trump does and this, that, and the other. But he's actually spent a lot of time on the budget, and he's a CPA, and he knows formulas. He speaks in numbers when you actually get to talk to him about policy things, and he has plans on where to cut overspending and maybe misuse of funds. He, he sees programs where, you know, there's no accountability and there's, you know, talking about the Board of Regents and I think it's the Georgia Technology Authority and some organizations like that that aren't necessarily um, within the scope of what should be 
our funding maybe I mean he's been able to talk about hundreds of thousands of dollars that could come from those entities and go to education funding and actual transportation funding in a in a way that we could see it um and I told him that is when I when I met with him I said you know I'm blown away that you know this much because your talking points the things you're putting on Facebook and the information that your campaign is putting out there just is not relaying how much you actually know he also has a really strong understanding of the role of the executive. You know, our Georgia legislature, Republicans particularly, have deeded so much power to the governor's office in the last eight years. It's frightening how powerful that office is. And he's the only one in an interview who sat down and said, this office is too powerful. These are the things I'd like to get rid of. I don't want to have floor leaders because I don't want to have, you know, my office influencing legislation. I want the legislature to act independently. Just little things like that, that as a libertarian leaning conservative kind of resonated with me. But that doesn't mean he's a, a well-rounded, perfect candidate. It just means there are some things that he can bring to the table. Well, I am, I, the border regions thing was the thing that stuck out to me. I think he wanted to bring more either executive or legislative oversight over the border regions and I could be misremembering this. I think he sponsored a bill related to like freezing tuition rates when at the level that you enter as a freshman. I heard that discussed in the lieutenant governor's race too, but I was I was a little shocked because the the board of regents often I think it's talked about as like the fourth branch of government. Totally. And um it it seemed both very brave and very bold and maybe also very stupid to want to pick a fight with the board of regents as one of your uh, the main things you want to do. And I actually, I was surprised. I've heard him talk a couple of times about, you know, the, the cost of college and things like that. Um, I haven't heard him get into as much detail as I saw in some of his legislation, but it, it did seem, um, like he would be willing to take them on in a way that I, I haven't heard any candidate on on either side of the aisle, um, be that willing to, to go after the regions. Yeah, and he also wants to eliminate the governor's office of student achievement and move. He's his argument is that that's a an executive agency, and we already have an elected superintendent. And he wants to get rid of the governor's appointments of the state school board and instead have those positions be appointed as well, which is an interesting move if you think about it. I mean, that, those are like you said. It's you don't know if it's stupid or smart, but I mean, he's talking about some very powerful agencies and entities entities in our state that he's willing to just say you you no longer operate as you have for the last several decades sorry um which i can appreciate but his rhetoric is killing me do you think that brian kemp has kind of sort of boxed him out of even i mean i think there's a lot of reasons that he may not have made the runoff anyways but brian kemp seems to have taken his lane on um, the rhetoric around immigration and and being a hardliner, um, and he doesn't tie himself to Trump as explicitly. But if you just listen to his rhetoric, it it sort of sounds Trumpian in a way. It's sort of like that show don't tell kind of thing. Do you think that that's part of what has kind of gotten in Williams' way? Maybe, but I, you know, Kemp was at an advantage in the first place because he already held statewide elected office. People know his name. Um, And I was talking with someone today, actually, about the difference between Kemp's commercial with, you know, rounding up immigrants and taking them home himself and a deportation bus. I don't know if you've seen the bus, but, you know, it's... Yeah, I saw it on Twitter uh, today. I mean, it's... It's a, the bus is abrasive. And I was having a conversation with somebody that, you know, as much as you may not agree with what Kemp is saying, the fact that in his commercial, he's smirking, he's talking about more than just um, immigration. He's talking about regulation and his chainsaw and guns and all this stuff. And he says, you know, yep, I just said that after he cranks up the truck. There's you may not agree with his position, but there's a very lighthearted tone to the commercial. Um, I think. On the conservative side of the aisle, whether you're supporting him or not, you you probably were able to laugh about it. Whereas the reaction to the the deportation bus is like, holy cow, this guy has murderers and rapists and kidnappers printed on the back of his bus and he's directing them all to Mexico. I mean, it was very serious and people immediately went to 
like Hitler and very extreme um, analogies, I guess. So while I'm inclined to say that, you know, Williams may not have, Kemp probably didn't take much from him. His personality is just more lighthearted. And he also has a rural plan for rural counties that's kind of working in his favor that none of the other candidates have. And I think that's resonated with a lot of people. What What's in Kemp's rural plan? Because I maybe it's uh, just maybe I just kind of lost it in, in all of the madness of the last couple of weeks. But I was surprised that very little of this primary seems to have turned on who can stand up and be a voice for rural Georgia in a way that when you look at Speaker Ralston and the the Rural Development Council, it, it seems like there's a desire there among Republicans to say, you know, these are not only our voters, but this is an important part of the state um, and they, you know, important industries in rural Georgia and, and, you know, we need to kind of do something about that. But um, do you do you find Kemp's proposals on rural issues persuasive? So I actually sat down with him um, maybe a week or so after he released the plan last fall. Um, He's the only candidate who's released a plan and he actually knows what he's talking about. So I will give him credit for that. Um, As a libertarian, I struggle a little with some of the options that he has because in some instances, you know, he looks at government as being a partner in making some of these rural healthcare fixes and the rural broadband. But, you know, we're kind of at that point in a state where the state is at a point where we've got to decide, are we going to sink or swim? So, you know, he's, he's has a plan to kind of partner um, with local EMC companies and power companies to use infrastructure that's already in place to provide this rural broadband. I am in total favor. I think I'm biased on this in this aspect because I have terrible internet. It might as well be dial up. I live out in the country and some days I can't even do a podcast because the internet is so bad, especially between like 6 and 8 p.m. when everyone's on the internet. But, you know, he wants to incentivize companies to actually run um, the services out to people. And um, then with rural healthcare, he's talked about, you know, allowing physicians assistants to do more um, removing certificate of need regulations. And um, basically, and on the healthcare side, he wants to, he has a plan to cut um, a lot of the barriers, I guess you could say they're in place. Um, and the other side of it is that it's just, we don't have jobs. And I think the rural healthcare, um, the rural development council that you mentioned, you know, one of their plans was to actually provide tax incentive for people who live in Metro Atlanta to move to rural areas and they would get property tax breaks and income tax breaks and all these incentives while all the people who already live here would kind of get the shaft. So I think, and Kemp doesn't have anything like that in his plan. And I think he understands the difference between, you know, maybe boosting up the communities that are there and the people who have been there and who are trying to operate businesses and stay in these rural communities versus just simply throwing money at a problem and recruiting other people to move from bigger communities. What are your thoughts on Clay Tippins in this race? I've, I've never really been able to get a handle on either what issues he's kind of campaigning on outside of combating sex trafficking. Um, I, he made headlines by uh, calling Hunter Hill a Benedict Arnold over um, his position on guns. But I don't, is this maybe like a first uh, bite at the apple in politics for him and and this is a chance for him to get his name ID up and, and run for something later or I don't I just haven't been able to figure him out sure so he um, you know he's also very educated on a lot of things that are going on but he's had a very bumpy campaign you talked about if this is his just getting his name out there and kind of seeing his first go around in the political realm but some people have speculated that it may be his last. He's kind of focused on some hot button issues, but he's really just come out swinging against everybody. And he had, an, I think, I don't know if you saw it, but he had a cannabis oil and cultivation ad that came out. And I guess it enraged the family so much that they took it down within a few hours. And he's just had a couple, um, I think, plans that they've put in place that have backfired. Um, 
But in terms of his actual issues, I mean, he's very educated on the budget, on not so much on the role of the executive, but he wants to run the state like a business. Now, whether or not you think that is a good idea um, or the approach that should be taken, you know, that's kind of a personal thing. But it, he definitely has distinguished himself by focusing on in-state cultivation, um, sex trafficking, and the opioid crisis. Um, but again, you know, he talks about medical marijuana as a alternative for some of these opioid area and like affected areas but then he says he's against recreational use or full medicinal so it's one of those things where again you're wondering you have this idea it sounds great but what, how are you actually going to get there when you won't connect all the dots so the other thing I have with him is that he claims to be an outsider but he's raised well over two million dollars he's raised that much money Outsiders don't raise money like that. Outsiders have to fund themselves. They have to claw from the trenches of being shut out by everyone else. He, he's by no means an outsider. Um, well, you want to talk any predictions? Do you have um, any thoughts on how this is going to turn out next week? To keep in line with almost always being wrong about these things. <laughs> I, you I and really, me both. <laughs> I really do think it's going to be... Kemp and Cagle. I really do. I don't, you know, Hunter is, is gaining on Kemp, but I just think that Kemp's name ID and his commercials have really resonated with Republican voters. I just kind of see him taking the lead, which will be interesting. Um, but I also think there's kind of a, an agreement that the people who supported the other candidates will not go to Cagle. They'll go to whoever is against um, Kegel, and in that event, you know, whoever Kegel's opponent would be would hopefully be our our choice in November. So, I was going to say, do you think that makes Kegel the underdog? If assume, I mean, this thing only goes to a runoff if he gets less than fifty uh, percent plus one, anyway. So, if um, you know, if all of that support for other candidates is is really kind of anti Kegel support, it, does he kind of flip the script and become the underdog in the runoff? No way. He's got $7 million. I mean, he's paying people and promising people board positions and agency overhead and all kinds. I mean, he's made so many promises and political favor follow throughs. I, he's not the underdog. There's no way he could ever be classified as the underdog. If Cagle is governor, the people will become the underdog. <laughs> Well, I look forward to a fundraising email from Casey Cagle with me crowning him as the underdog in this contest <laughs> so he can find a way to raise $7 million more dollars. Um, yeah, I think I I kind of lean, I don't, I mean, I know it's Cagle and then, I don't know, it's a coin flip between Brian Kemp and Hunter Hill, I think. Sure. Um, I think. The I think the only thing that may hurt Brian Kemp is I think a lot of Republican base voters are concerned about the issue of immigration, but there's two candidates that are hammering home that issue hard. And even though Michael Williams hasn't polled very well in anything that I've seen, um, even if he takes just a few votes away from Cagle, that could be enough to to swing it to Hill. Um, I have I have deep concerns about Hill from the left in terms of his proposal to eliminate the state income tax. Um, but those are things that I think if he does make the runoff, uh, he's kind of skirted having to give a lot of details about what that would actually mean, um, particularly for a lot of the spending that the state already does. And, and I think that uh, a runoff is going to sort of force him to, to come to terms with what his position actually means on that. Um, you want to talk about the lieutenant governor's race, son? Sure. So this is an interesting it's just interesting. Jeff Duncan, David Schaefer, and Rick Jafaris. I don't, I don't, Rick has just really dropped the ball on campaigning. Um, and I think he's really struggling to get his message out. I don't think a lot of people know about him. You know, David Schaefer has always been, um, he's been in the media and in the Republican movement for such a long time that even when the allegations of um, sexual harassment and everything came out, I mean, 
his supporters didn't even blink. They just said, nope, no way. Um, and then Jeff Duncan has almost run an entire campaign on his opponent. I mean, you go to his website and it doesn't even have a biography on him, which as a journalist drives me nuts. Um, <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't have to figure out who your wife is by um, Facebook stalking, but I negative campaigning works, but I just, I don't, I think it's been a long time since we've had a race that is almost a hundred percent just on the other guy. And the only name recognition you're building is by being the person, you know, hedging those attacks. So it'll be really, I'm really eager to see what happens with that race. Do you think that one goes to a runoff? And if, if it does, do you think it is uh, Schaefer versus Duncan? Because I, I noticed in the lieutenant governor debate, um, Schaefer, you know, all the, all the candidates in the Atlanta Press Club debates, all the candidates get to ask one other candidate a question. And uh, Schaefer took that opportunity to give a real softball question to Jeffries. Um, I think it was about something to do with higher education. And then they asked Schaefer for his rebuttal. And he's like, Nope, I agree with my friend over here completely. Um, so he seemed to be trying to boost up Jeffries um, and avoid a runoff with with Duncan, I guess, is is the thought in mind. But but do you think that that's where that goes? Yeah, I don't think I don't foresee um, Jeffries having a spot in the runoff. You know, there's been talk and whisper about whether Schaefer could win it outright. I think it's a possibility, but, you know, Jeff Duncan has put a lot of money into the race and he has a good amount of backing, I think a lot more than he thought. And he's just painting David Schaefer as a career politician, which, as you know, is not the thing to be right now. So I think that it will be the two of them. And then I don't know if Jeff will be able to continue negative campaigning all the way through the runoff and have that be successful. He might actually have to turn on a couple policy positions. But Yeah, I found uh, Jeff Duncan kind of interesting in that his some of his rhetoric in the in the debate mirrored some of Hunter Hill's rhetoric. Um, Duncan talked about having the four C's come in and take over uh, issues of you know social problems and, and take the responsibility off of that for government. And I think I only caught three of his C's, but it was uh, churches, charities, corporations, and um, I'm going to do the Rick Perry, but there was a fourth one in there um, that I missed when I was watching that debate. But but that uh, sort of lines up with what Hunter Hill's been saying in that Hunter Hill's argument about cutting the state income tax is all about government getting back to its core competencies, and, and the ones he tends to list are... Uh, you know, like public safety, transportation, and education. Um, and even on education, he has a lot of uh, stuff about school choice that would actually move a lot of responsibility for that outside of at least the traditional K through 12 system. Um, but, you know, Jeff Duncan has that same rhetoric about getting responsibility for social problems off of the hands of the government and into hands of, of private actors. Um, interestingly, he does not support eliminating the state income tax. He said in that debate that I think he'd bring it down two or three points. Um, but he doesn't go as far as Hunter Hill is on that. Um, but it, if you're, if you're coming at this from kind of a libertarian perspective, how, how do you feel about, um, taking a lot of the things that the state government is doing now and in healthcare and education and a lot of other social services and, and putting those, the responsibility for those in the hands of uh, non-state government uh, entities. Um, you know, education is one that in a utopia, I'm in favor of the state not being involved, but we've set up a system and our state constitution calls for it. So it's not really something that I, harp on it's not my issue um as far as the other things go i mean i i tend to agree but then you're, when you start talking about privatizing you know we get into prisons and probation and all these other things that we've just royally for lack of a better phrase screwed the pooch on and just monetized um a, a program that is not in the best interest of our state or anybody who's affected by the program so unless you are the program. Um, so I'm, you know, is I'm 
I agree, but the, we've seen that the state is not capable of implementing a program where they're, quote, not involved. I mean, it's just like the adoption bill and the pregnancy resource centers bills we've seen in the past couple years where, you know, they want these private charities and private organizations to be able to do something, but they give them tax dollars and then they want to, they tell them what they can and cannot do while they're funneling them money. So I just don't. I don't have any faith at this point that they could properly get their hands out of it, if that makes any sense. So the other race that I know you took a close look at was the Secretary of State's race. And and this one, I think, is one of the more interesting on the Republican side of the aisle, too. Um, As we head to the vote on May 22nd, where do you think that race stands? You know, I wrote an article on this just a few days ago, and... I was blown away when I looked at the fundraising numbers. Um, I I know all of the candidates. I've either worked for them or with them at some point over the last um, four to six years. And ones who I thought were the underdogs were the highest, um, the most well-funded in terms of donations. And then, you know, just not too long ago, Brad Raffensperger, who kind of everyone thought was just going to come in a distant fourth threw in $500,000 of his own money to kind of get on TV and boost all his name recognition. I got a mailer that's two pages, like a poster board basically that they stuffed in my mailbox. So I think that it truly is a popularity contest and it's all gonna depend on, you know, they haven't really traveled outside of the metro area too much to meet with voters. So when a lot of the voters are gonna go to the box and pick based on what name sounds good. So. I truly think it's, you know, you see these straw polls where in one county, one person wins like without a runoff, which is hilarious. And then you go to the next county and that person was like in third place. So it's, I, I think it's totally up in the air and I suspect there'll be a runoff and I expect Josh McCoon to be in it just because his statewide name recognition, but it's a popularity contest for sure. They're all saying the same thing. Are there, yeah, are there things about the Secretary of State's job or or frustrations about the way Brian Kemp did this job that are important to Republicans in this? Or, or is it really going to be, uh, you know, popularity that decides this thing? What's interesting is that even though he's running for governor and there are so many people who are angry with him, there are also, there hasn't been much conversation about what he did wrong in the race, um, in the Secretary of State's race or in the governor's race. It's it's bizarre. But I don't think, I think, I, and it's totally slipping my mind now, I think it was um, Buzz Brockway who said he wanted to purge the social security numbers. Yeah, um, that was Buzz. Yes. That said that. But other, and that's something that would relate to, you know, um, security of it all. But other than that, I mean, it's all voter fraud and not having businesses get licensed as often or as high fees. I mean, it's just, it's killing me. It really is because it's a statewide office that pays a fortune and all we can come up with is voter ID for absentee ballots and a three-year annual fee instead of a one-year. I mean, really? I haven't paid super close attention to this race, but we talked to Buzz Brockway on the show shortly after he announced for his campaign. And, and I was struck that he... Um, at least a little bit seems to be diving into the details and kind of leaning on his uh, reputation as being a nerd, as being a positive thing for him in this race. Um, I, I have found him to be one of the more like straightforward and honest people about, you know, what he believes in, in his conservative beliefs. Um, and so I, I hope, I hope to see him do well in that race. Um but it, it does seem like, you know, Josh McCoon has a lot of name ID from things that he's done that are not really related to the duties of Secretary of State at all in a lot of the legislation that he's pushed when he was in the state Senate. So, yeah, it will be interesting to see how that thing kind of kind of shakes out. Um, it does lend this sort of like, I don't I mean, I it seems like it could be almost a dream race for people who are, are really into Georgia politics with a pretty famous uh, person like John Barrow on the Democratic side that might come out of this and a 
uh, either loved or reviled Josh McCoon coming out on the Republican side that that may actually make this thing uh, entertaining, if not substantive in the fall. Sure. I think McCoon and Barrow, you know, I live in the 12th district, so John Barrow was the congressman here. And he was well-loved by, like, a lot of Republicans, not the far-right ones, but the moderates. And, you know, he he had three different congressional districts at one time, you know, over the course of his career that kind of shifted. And so he has a lot of name recognition. And I think that it would be, with McCoon being as divisive as he is and Barrow being as moderate as he is, even though it's the Secretary of State's office, I definitely think it could be possibly more competitive than the governor's race in terms of, you know, coming close within margins on election day in November. Yeah. Well, any final thoughts on any of these Republican races, any of the other ones that stand out to you or, or, uh, any state house or state Senate primaries that are interesting? You know, what's interesting, just kind of as a tidbit, it's kind of been in the news recently with, um, state representative Matt Gertler, Um, with House leadership sending him money and endorsing his opponent, who's not the incumbent for the very first time, I think, in a long time. They're actually trying to oust one of their own, and it's one, Matt Gertler is um, one of the the Republicans who voted no more than anyone actually wrote an article on it. He voted no 33% of the time, which doesn't seem like that much to those of us who are paying attention, but in in the chamber, apparently, it's a lot. So, anyway, I did. Um, I think it's interesting. It will be an interesting race to watch to see if outside influence can be as effective as it has been in the past. And then also down here in House District 157, which is very rural Georgia, the 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 power players are coming out in Matt Gertler's district, but the money is funneling in down here from lawmakers all around the state. They funneled over $50,000 um, into a house race down here to defeat a state representative who served four years ago. He's challenging the current state representative. And so it's just, I'm really eager to see how much all this money and all this power has an influence over these rather small communities around the state that to most everyone else isn't very important. So what do you think about the the issue with Gertler? Um, we uh, talked about this on Political Rewind last week about this challenge to Gertler from legislative leadership and the Republicans. And I noted that, um, you know, if if the coming blue wave that a lot of us talk about on, on our side of the aisle actually happens, it's it may cut into the uh, legislative majority that Republicans have. And so to me, it makes sense that legislative leadership would see somebody like Gertler that doesn't vote with them very often um, as a problem and as somebody that they would want to push out because every vote, not only in on the floor, but also in committee is going to become even more important if that majority gets a little narrower. Um, but do you do you see that differently in terms of having you know, legislative leadership come in and meddle in, uh, you know, an election that probably should be decided by the locals? You know, it's it's been an interesting thing for me to try to analyze because I am not the type of person who wants everyone to just stand with Republicans because they're Republican or stand, stand with Democrats because they're Democrats. If somebody is right, I want them to stand on their issues. But I think being this kind of comes down to being an independent thinker and not being a yes man and so i think that's why i struggle so much because gertler is accountable to his district and not to leadership so it's not even that he's just a republican that won't stand with republicans it's that he can't be bought and he can't be persuaded and that's why they want him out and so i think that's why i personally struggle so much with their attempts to oust him because it's what we all desire in politics as somebody who votes on an issue, whether it's conservative or Democrat, they, they vote their conscience and they have a reason for why they vote that way. And the leadership is trying to get rid of that kind of person. And mm-hmm. I don't think that's much of a leader at all. So while you bring up some great points about how important each vote is going to become, it, it doesn't show any leadership to me. 
All right. So let's uh, talk about the Democrats a little bit. Um, so on the Democratic side in the governor's race, you have the two Stacys. We've we talked a lot about them. Um, but this race, as it comes down to its final days, is getting more heated as the primary gets closer, which I think is something for a lot of Democrats. They don't really want to see that um, because this has been uh, a choice that's caused a lot of heartburn for a lot of people unless you had you know really specific reasons to oppose one of the Stacys. Um, the interesting thing on this is that the battle lines haven't really shifted. The the biggest division between these two is still on um, the 2011 debate over the Hope Scholarship um, in the uh, waning days of the Great Recession. Uh, Stacey Abrams and some of her uh, Democrats in the caucus joined with Republicans to enact some cuts to the HOPE program. Um, at the time, everybody who was involved in this effort said that these uh, changes were needed because the fiscal situation for the program was really bad, and that if you if you didn't do something about it, um, there were going to be really significant consequences for people who were relying on that program, and so they've always pitched it as you know, these changes were needed to save the program. Stacey Evans obviously uh, feels very differently about that and has kind of organized most of her campaign around opposing opposing Abrams on this issue of the hope cuts. I'm just curious, Jessica, from your perspective as somebody who's who probably pays more a little more attention to the Republicans. um, Is there anything about the Democratic race that you're interested in or or sort of confused by uh, what's going on um, on our uh, one of the first uh, sort of bitter fights that we've had on our side of the aisle in quite a while. I mean, I certainly understand why it's a divisive vote, and I think that it will carry on into the general, depending on who is on the Republican side. I think it's a worthwhile conversation worth having, but something that I've been perplexed by this entire primary season is why Evans does not attack Abrams on her lack of leadership as minority leader and her kind of her her opportunity to really stand in opposition stand in the way of a lot of bad Republican bills and instead she kind of quietly negotiated and did a lot of work behind the scenes. And I think she should have maybe been a little bit more outspoken and vocal. And I just, I was very, I'm very surprised um, that Evans hasn't really capitalized on kind of a lack of leadership. I wrote an article, I think last year about how, or yes, right before um, Bob Trammell became the uh, minority leader. And it was talking about, you know, how often Democrats voted with Republicans on issues. And this year, under his leadership, it's been a remarkable change. I mean, we're talking 30, 40 percent of the time some of these Democrats are voting against Republicans and taking a stand and letting people know that they think something's a bad idea. So I think the Evans campaign, while you don't want to tear down your opponents too much, has kind of missed an opportunity that maybe would have set her aside. Yeah, this is uh, something that I've been wrestling with, too. And I, I think the the tough part of that issue is when Evans lays out her argument about hope, she talks about Abrams being at the table with Republicans and buying into cuts that she argues are really dangerous. Uh, but she doesn't really ever complete the sentence and say what the other better option would have been. I mean, I think implicit in that is that she should have uh, rallied her caucus to oppose these cuts and and have everybody vote against them and and make it a a partisan issue. This was something that Republicans in Washington did really well when it came to the Affordable Care Act, um, an idea that had some conservative or moderate roots to it. They rallied opposition and then uh, went out and won a majority in the House by opposing the Affordable Care Act. I think the issue, though, for Democrats in trying to answer that question is, is there anything about Democratic performance in 2012 or 2014 that suggests that they could have cut into a Republican majority by arguing against the cuts to the HOPE program. Because 2014, especially, was sort of supposed to be maybe this comeback year for the Democrats with Jason Carter and Michelle Nunn topping the statewide ticket. And there was no divisive primary in either of those races. So it seemed like everybody was on Team Democrat and ready to put our best foot forward against the Republicans. Um, And that race really wasn't close. Um, And so I don't, 
I, I think it's tough for her. I don't, I don't think it's tough for her. I, I just, I've been shocked by her not completing the sentence and, and saying that, you know, what we need as a party, um, as a way to, to come back into the majority is to be more of an oppositional party, to vote with the Republicans less, to really bring to the people more all of the things that Democrats think are terrible about Republican action in the legislature. And I think that, uh, for a lot of Democrats going back maybe 10 or 15 years, that hasn't really been the stance. It's, it's been, um, I think it's been kind of go along to get along and, uh, play nice to get a little bit for either their own districts or, um, to get a little bit on their own issues because Republicans haven't been, um, especially punitive to their democratic opponents in the legislature since they took the majority over. You know, and you see different you see different ways of that playing out. You look at people like Scott Holcomb, who um, are very effective in working across the aisle. You know, but I would look at I look at his voting record and I look at the stances he's taken and the bills he's had passed, and it doesn't really appear that he's compromised his actual positions. He's just chosen the right positions and the right initiatives that can really garner support from both sides of the aisle. I mean, we all saw how ridiculous Renee Unterman looked when she blocked the rape kit bill and things like that. But, you know, I think that would be a criticism I would have of Democrats in the sense that they haven't exactly chosen the right issue. They haven't really chosen a whole lot of issues as a, as a whole to kind of bring to the table to fight for in the legislature. It's always been little things here and there instead of maybe being vocal about what they want even if even if it's not something that's going to get passed show a united front show a movement yeah i think their uh support for medicaid expansion under the affordable care act has kind of been the thing that probably should have been their big point of opposition and and they do every year they come up with a a full medicaid expansion bill and this is um for people who aren't familiar with this, this is a piece of the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare that states have an option of taking whether they take it or not. And, and Governor Deal has refused to take it since he, um, you know, ever since the law passed. And I, I think that there's a big opening there for Democrats in this issue about rural health care to make the case that the Medicaid expansion is going to bring a lot of resources to rural communities and um, I think this is an issue where they they kind of have public opinion in a really broad sense on their side, but they haven't been able. This is this is sort of I think the the opposite case where I I think Evans's case about hope might be wrong um, is that this is an issue that has really high support among Democrats. It has kind of broad public support of people think we should be putting more resources toward healthcare, particularly in rural communities. And they put forth a bill every time in the legislature um, and they've done press conferences and they've tried to draw attention to it and it just hasn't moved the needle at all. Um, and so, you know, that's like, if you try to trade that issue with hope and, and, and mount a campaign like they've tried to do with Medicaid expansion, it, it just hasn't moved the needle. You know, that's, that's an issue right now that both the Democrats running for governor are, are in alignment on. Do you think that it's had a positive or a negative effect on the fact that, like you said in the beginning of this conversation, that it's been a very hard decision for a lot of people or a lot of people you have said, you know, I don't want to say who I'm voting for or, you know, I'm going to make that decision on Election Day. Do you think that the fact that they are so similar on so many other things and they are well-respected women who have a lot of support across the state has had a positive or a negative impact on the outcome of your primary? Like, will people be upset about the outcome or will they just kind of take it and move on? I think they'll end up taking it and moving on. I think it's pretty clear that this election is going to be a lot about Donald Trump. And um, so I, I, I think that people who are engaged in democratic politics and who have a strong feeling either way, they're going to be on Team Democrat when the election gets here in November. Um, I do think that the interesting thing, though, where there is some disagreement that might last is this debate over how Democrats might come back to some kind of a majority. 
Um, because Stacey Abrams thinks that the path to a majority is energizing voters of color and getting the most progressive people in the state excited to vote, talking to their issues in a way that Democrats haven't done in a long time. And Evans uh, ties herself much more to sort of Jason Carter's uh, approach and the approach of Democrats in the waning days of their majority in the late 90s and early 2000s of being NRA. Well, she's not an NRA Democrat, but Jason Carter was. But, you know, being uh, open to more conservative viewpoints, trying to welcome uh, moderate Republicans into the party. And, and that when you look at the influence from the national party down on the state party, the national party is sort of all in on progressive voters at this point. And, and the early contenders on the 2020 presidential race are all fighting right now, sort of the way the Republican gubernatorial candidates are about how far to the left can we go? And they're all chasing Bernie Sanders, you know, way out the door on the left. Um, and so I don't know, that would create an interesting split if if Evans was to win this thing out and sort of push that vision of having the Democrats try to appeal to moderate Republicans and bring them across the aisle. Um, she would be sort of alone in that from where the National Party is going. If Abrams wins and everybody's going um, towards progressive voters and towards energizing voters of color, um, I think that that would sort of unite the party around that vision um, but whether or not that'll actually be effective here in Georgia, I think, is an open question. Hmm. Interesting. Have you heard anything about the lieutenant governor's race? Because this is one I haven't heard, like, anything about at all. No. So there's one candidate who everyone says she has to win. And if she doesn't, then they're screwed on that on that ballot option for that race in the general. Um, Sarah. Yeah, so Sarah Riggs Amico is is the one, um, and she's kind of a moderate Democrat. She would sort of line up a little bit better with Evans if they were um, kind of on a ticket together. Um, I haven't heard anybody raise any red flags about this race, and I, I think to some extent for Democrats that should be kind of concerning um, because actually in the polling that AJC put out, um, Sarah Riggs Amico was trailing Triana Arnold James uh, 20% to 10%. Now, they are the only two candidates in the race, and so the other 70% are undecided. But Triana Arnold James has raised, I think, less than $10,000, whereas Amico has raised about $700,000. Wow. Um, and so it's like on finances, it's no contest. And if James was to be the one to win this race, I don't think she would have the resources at all to take on any of the Republicans that that came out of the other side of that. But James has kind of questioned how much of a Democrat Sarah Riggs Amico is. Um, and the fact that a lot of the reporting from AJC makes it seem like, you know, not a lot of people are actually paying attention or all that enthused, despite people being like engaged in politics. I'm not sure that they're, I feel like they might be kind of overwhelmed by everything going on with Trump and in Washington. And, and, you know, the thought of a Democratic lieutenant governor's race probably escapes a lot of people's minds. But if, if just a few people, um, catch on to Triana Arnold James messaging that Sarah Riggs Amico might not be democratic or progressive enough. Um, and the fact that, uh, she doesn't have a lot of money that would be a real red flag for Democrats because they could, uh, give away a really winnable race. Um, if they don't put Amico through to the next round, I've been kind of curious where, we're coming up on the end of it now, but I've been kind of curious if either Abrams or Evans or maybe both of them would come together and endorse Sarah Riggs Amico. Um, because I, I think James would be sort of an anchor on the, the overall democratic ticket, um, in a way that might actually cost Evans or Abrams the governor's race. If it actually turns out to be close. Wow. It's pretty serious. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I haven't heard anybody else talk about it, and this is not data at all, but but there's a lot of people saying who they voted for on Twitter, and um, everybody's saying, you know, either Evans or Abrams, but then they're all saying Amico afterwards, but, um, you know, the, the Georgia poll Twitter feed is not probably representative of right. where voters actually are. Well, anything else on these elections that, that stands out to you as we kind of wrap up the show here? You know, it's horrible to say, but I'm really just ready for May 22nd to be here and to just know what's going into the runoff. 
it's been almost worse um, because it was so slow to get started. And I feel like now all of a sudden we have all these voters who are um, making rash decisions based on negative campaigning and last minute, you know, ploys from different camps. And I, that's when I start getting frustrated with the process and just want to throw my hands up. So I'm hoping on May 23rd, regardless of who's in the runoffs in these races, some of us will be a little more optimistic. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. I, I'm ready for this thing to be done too. And and the Democrats don't really have to worry about runoffs, but, uh, right. I don't know. This has been a, a frustrating election season. We're not, we're not ending on an exciting note here. But, um, <laughs> no. Get out, get out there and vote on May 22nd. And, uh, um, just please just yeah, vote, <laughs> vote for somebody. Uh, I think this will be, I don't, I don't know if it'll be more painful or more fun when we get to the Republicans versus the Democrats, but, um, this whole inter-party thing has been, uh, made me want to pull my hair out looking at both sides of the aisle. That's right. Amen. (laughs) Well, Jessica, uh, thank you so much for joining the show. No, thank you for having me. It was great to talk with you. Um, so yeah, get out there and vote May 22nd. Early voting is going on now and, uh, the runoffs that we're probably going to see on the Republican side and, and maybe in some democratic congressional races too. Um, those are going to happen in, I think late July, right? Is the runoff date. Um, so there'll be more to talk about as always on peach Bod, but for now we will let you guys get out of here. Uh, and we will talk to y'all soon. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.